Um, we've been talking about uh, the ties that bind, really about unity, fellowship. Um, and one of the more recent, well, it's not recent, but the story has been highlighted recently. Uh, the story of the 1936 University of Washington rowing team that ended up being the, the team that went to represent the U.S. in the Olympics over in Berlin. And I did want to show you guys uh, a clip. PBS did a great special on that. Of course, the book, The Boys in the Boat, came out recently and drew the spotlight on it. But I wanted to show you guys the kind of the trailer for that video, and then I'm going to read an excerpt or two out of the, the Boys in the Boat book, and then we're going to get into the scripture tonight. So let's show that video, if you would, Austin. It's online. I mean, I saw it when it came out. Uh, but very, very good documentary on that. But so... That story, the 1936 University of Washington State uh, Olympic, or not Olympic, but just their university rowing team, uh, was pretty special. So these young men quite dramatically came from all sorts of backwater places, uh, obscurity really. Uh, they were not known as a great rowing school to win the gold medal in the 1936 Olympics under the the uh, displeased eyes of the Fuhrer. And traditionally, when people thought of rowing, even today, I think, when they think of rowing, you think of the Northeast, you think of Harvard and Yale and places like that, uh, Princeton. But back in the 30s, it was kind of the same way. No one imagined a crew from Washington State, uh, of all places, could be competitive. And yet that team was put together, and they began to, want to win university uh, competitions and uh, draw a lot of attention, but they came from farms, they came from shipping towns, they came from logging backgrounds. And on their way to Olympic glory, first they blew through the western rivals, mostly from California, and then shocked the nation by beating the cream of the crop, uh, the New England schools, to become the American Olympic team, and won the gold medal there in 1936 in Berlin. Uh, and by the way, this is interesting. When I was watching the documentary, I didn't realize this, but rowing used to be a really big deal. Um, I mean, all of these big events were actually on the radio. You could listen to these rowing competitions live on the radio. And back to that team, the Washington team, this unique group won Olympic gold by maintaining unity even in their diverse backgrounds. Uh, Daniel Brown is the one that wrote the book that really drew attention to them a couple of years back called The Boys in the Boat. And he, one of the things he does is he tries to explain how eight individuals uh, of varying physiques, statures, um, very different personalities, how they actually cap capitalized on their diversity, how they made it a strength. So I'm just going to read some of what he wrote about that. He said, races are won by crews, and great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. A crew composed entirely of eight amped up, overtly aggressive oarsmen will often <laughs> degenerate into a dysfunctional brawl in a boat or exhaust itself in the first leg of a long race. Similarly, a boatload of quiet but strong introverts 
may never find the common core of fiery resolve that causes the boat to explode past its competitors when all seems lost. He says, good crews are good blends of personalities. Someone to lead the charge. Someone to hold something in reserve. Someone to pick a fight. Someone to make peace. Someone to think things through. Someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow all of this must mesh. Even after the right mixture is found, each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew, accept it, and accept the others as they are. And then he says, it is an exquisite thing when it all comes together in just the right way. What happened with that rowing team in 1936 was an extraordinary example of unity of this dynamic that occurs when individuals of different abilities and personalities and strengths come together to row as one. And as we've seen in Ephesians chapter 4 already, Ephesians tells us that the church has a really extraordinary unity, something not of this world, in fact, something that is God-given. And I'd say that's a pretty extraordinary unity from the get-go, something that's actually given to us by God. And it's a unity, a common, uh, rather a community fellowship that we have in the Spirit that we are instructed to or commanded to hold on to. So let's go to the text tonight, and we'll be focusing tonight on the same kind of pivotal verse, but we're going to go after that verse as well. So starting in verse 3, we've read this one every week so far. Make every effort... Make every effort to hold on to the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now into the new stuff. There is one body. By the way, I'm calling the lesson tonight the big ones because he lists all these big ones, these big things that unite us. He says, there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so talking about these big ones, Paul tonight is going to tell us over and over again that there are these singular, unique things that hold us together, things that you're not going to find anywhere else, only in God's holy church. And we as a body of believers are united through the Spirit and we are held together by these great God-given gifts. And by the way, none of them, again, none of them of human origin. Um, They're given by God. They They are not manufactured here. They are manufactured in heaven and given to us. So even here in, on a Sunday night, we have a lot of different interests and outlooks represented in the room. We have different goals. Um, we have different stages of family, uh, different careers, different financial means, uh, different goals for physical fitness even. I'd like to, I'd like to have a six-pack like those guys in that video for sure. Um, but there is one 
singular calling that we share. And Paul names it for us in chapter 4, the very first verse. He says, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. He says, you have a calling, be worthy of that. I have a calling, you have a calling. Will we live up to that? That's his big question to start uh, this chapter. Will we grow into that? And simply put, verse 13, he tells us what the calling is, and this one is one we hear a lot in the New Testament. It is a calling to grow up into Jesus. Or verse 13 talks about growing into the fullness of Christ. Um, Now, I've heard this said before. I find it interesting, so I'll share it with you because it definitely gets, gets the attention going. Um, a preacher stood before his congregation one day and announced, I am not a Christian. And they were like, oh my, what's coming next? You know, I'm not a Christian. Um, you know, they're thinking, well, what are you doing <laughs> preparing sermons and preaching the gospel to us, us each week if you're not a Christian? But he said again, I'm not a Christian. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard before the, the translation of that word literally. I mean, the real meaning of that word, not the cultural meaning, is someone who is like Christ. A Christian means someone who is like Christ. And basically, he told them, I'm not like Christ, so I'm not a Christian. And we're used to hearing that word used in a different way, in the cultural sense of the word, in the which box on the, on the data sheet will I check? Well, I'm not a Muslim or a Jew, or, the, or I don't consider myself an atheist, so I'm a Christian. I mean, my grandparents, my parents were Christians, everybody's Christian there, so I'm a Christian. And so we identify that as a sort of a religious preference. But getting back to this calling, it's not to check a box, it's to be like Christ. And that is a, I've got a long way to go. There's a big difference between me and Jesus. And to make that claim, I am a Christian, I am Christ-like, I, yeah, I don't know that I can make that claim uh, in the true sense of the word. But the calling is to become more and more, growing into the fullness. It's a process. It's a developmental thing that happens. And, and sisters and brothers, we share that as the church. We share that common calling to grow up and to mature into the fullness of Jesus, verse 13 in chapter 4. And that language, growing and developing, it's not mechanical language, it's organic language. I mean, the New Testament loves organic language to describe this, this evolution, this growth. Um, It's not like I'm ever going to reach a point, like I'm going to wake up maybe in 2019 one morning and presto, I've arrived. I am now like Jesus. No more growing to be done. You with me? I mean, that, that moment doesn't arrive. That, that step is not going to happen for me in this life. Um, we, got it, we are called to be cultivated. Um, and Jesus, you remember when he's talking in John to his disciples, he, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Yeah, you have been grafted into me. We are offshoots uh, of Jesus. And that doesn't mean... Um, that we are working ourselves into salvation, like I've got to do enough work and finally I'm, I crossed the threshold and now I'm saved. Um, that's just a misunderstanding of justification and sanctification, right? Justification, we've talked about this before, is being made right with God. That's what Jesus did that for you. 
And only Jesus could do that for you. He made you right with God. He declared you not guilty based on his righteousness and the blood of his that washed your sins away. Sanctification is what happens after we receive the gift of the Spirit. And over time, we are sanctified. Uh, we are transformed in glory after glory with unveiled faces as we grow into uh, the image of Jesus. So justification, sanctification is what we're doing now, growing into Christ, developing, uh, being grafted more and more firmly into that vine. So God who justifies, and we are thankful for that, and we gather to praise God for that. He, it's a gift that he gave us, but he paid an awful high price for that gift of justification. And then sanctification is this organic process. The spirit who lives in us is powering this change. Now, there's a really strong glue that holds us to Christ and that holds us together. It's the calling that we share to become like Him. And the Spirit, as we yield to Him, He grows us together in Christ and into the likeness of Jesus. Now, clearly, I think you could say we are not all at the same point along the journey. Everybody is, is growing up into the likeness of Jesus, and we're at different places along this journey, and that's okay. Um, we don't need to constantly be comparing ourselves and feeling bad about where, where we're at. We're at different places along the journey, uh, but we are on the same journey, and that's pretty significant in a world that's so fractured and divided. We are on the same journey to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And think about how that draws us together, being on the same journey, headed toward the same destination. It's that common calling that holds us together. And one of the things it does for us is that it gives us the grace to give each person space to grow. We've got new Christians, we've got seasoned Christians, and because we recognize the journey we're on, we're able to kind of give people the space they need to breathe and to grow and make some mistakes, but, but, but have grace extended and grow through that and grow out of that. And so it helps us, I think, to extend grace knowing uh, that each person that we run into in the body of Christ is on a journey, but it's the same journey that we're on. They're just different points along, along the path. Here's a quote that I like. I've never shared this here before. I, think, I like it um, because it comes from our history, our fabric in the restoration movement, which we got into a little bit last week. And I think it reminds us of the higher calling that's not just focused on getting your ticket punched to, to heaven, not just fire insurance avoiding hell. Uh, hell. Uh, we want to avoid hail as well, but I think we're most interested in avoiding hail. But it's, it's a focus on, because you can easily focus on that transaction. Are you lost? Are you saved? Are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? And James A. Harding, co-founder of Lipscomb University and namesake of Harding University in Searcy, um, this is what he said one time from the, the, uh, the Gospel Advocate back in 1887. He wrote, I have observed that those speakers as a rule secure the greatest number of accessions who dwell most upon escaping hell and getting into heaven. So in one way, he says they're successful. People respond to that. So I have observed that those speakers as a rule secure the greatest number of accessions who dwell most upon escaping hell and getting into heaven and least 
upon the importance of leading lives of absolute consecration to the Lord. In other words, their converts are much more anxious to be saved than they are to follow Christ. Interesting. A teaching, a preaching, a gospel that's centered on getting people to the waters of baptism, but not on the calling, which is to make disciples. And even in the 1800s, James Harding saw that, that that's a problem, okay? That's, that's, that's falling far short of the goal of making disciples. It's a much higher calling, the consecration of lives dedicated to the Lord, to growing in the Lord. And I think he saw a problem, perhaps, can't talk to him, he's already gone, but perhaps he saw a problem already developing in our movement that there would be such an emphasis put on a moment of salvation on getting people under the waters of baptism that we could, in fact, miss out on the calling of, of them growing into discipleship, of them growing into the likeness of Christ for the rest of their lives. In other words, baptism is not the finish line, it's the starting line, okay? It's, it's the starting gate, or as Jesus would say in John 3, it's the birth. Um, it's not, we got you there, we're done. No, you're not done when you, when you deliver the baby. You've just started <laughs> You just started the journey. And I think he saw the danger in emphasizing a moment of justification rather than a lifetime of sanctification. So back to this theme of unity. It really would have been simpler, much simpler, if Paul had simply said, look, the way to be in unbroken fellowship is just ignore your differences. Everyone pretend that we aren't different. Pretend that we all vote the same, that we all think the same, that we all act the same. Uh, pretend you're the same. That would have been easier. Um, but what kind of unity is a pretend unity? I don't think that's something we want. Um, and so one way to get unity might be to, taking that a step forward, one way to achieve unity might be to, ig to ignore differences or to simply avoid contact with those with whom we disagree. For example, if we have differences, let's plant another church on the other side of town where the people that think that way can go. If we have differences on this issue, and as you know, that's historically what, what happened. I mean, kitchens or Bible classes or located preachers. or I mean, we, divisions over all sorts of things with that kind of logic. Wouldn't it be easier if we just gathered with people we agreed with or that agreed with us? Um, but that's a pretend unity. That's a unity on the cheap. It's certainly not a unity ever advocated in the New Testament, certainly not by Paul in Ephesians 4, because what he describes is a unity based on diversity, on interdependence, and on a common rock-solid belief that God put us together. It may be a mystery to us, but he's the one who was the architect of this, of this project. Um, and so... Let's get into the big ones from verses 4 through 6. The big ones that hold us together. So we are bound together because we are crafted. Let's put those up there if we, if we could. That list, yeah, thank you. We are bound together because we are part of one body, Paul says, we are crafted by God into this body, the body of Christ. 
And I can think of few things that, that could, or a few metaphors that could describe more deeply an interconnectedness than saying you're part of a body, that you're part of one body. I mean, our bodies are composed of uh, different members, of different systems that are made to work together, that have to work together, really. Um, the skeletal system, the muscular system, the central nervous system, respiratory system, cardiovascular system, digestive system, and the immune system. These systems are designed to work together. And that's almost a stupid thing to even say. We all know that's true because we've got a word in, in the English language to describe what happens when any one of those systems ceases to function. If any one of those systems ceases to function, the word is death. The body dies. Um, so they must work and work together and do their job or life ceases. The body expires. So one body, Paul says, we are grafted together into this body, the body of Christ. That's a big one. And here's another. Paul says that we share the same spirit. There is one spirit. And in a place like Preston Crest, we have hundreds, I mean maybe 1,200 different distinct personalities and temperaments from the nursery all the way up to the golden agers. Uh, and yet there is one spirit that lives in us. Uh, the same Holy Spirit inhabits each one of us. That's a big one. Paul says that there is one hope. Um, we share a living hope. We don't have a dead hope. Our Messiah raised from, from, from death to life and ascended to heaven. Um, and that tells us death will not have the last word because we belong to him. We have a living hope. And so I, I love how that plays out in the dynamic of a Christian community. Um, at a funeral service, funeral services, y'all, most of you have been to a lot of different funeral services for a lot of different people. I'm sure you've been to funeral services of believers and unbelievers, and there is a, there is a marked difference, isn't there, in the way those things happen. There are tears at both, don't get me wrong. Uh, we're sad when we lose someone, when we lose their presence here because they've become so important to us. But we call uh, a funeral service at Preston Christ a celebration of life, right, John Scott? We call it a celebration of life. And, and we're not using that. I think if you just walked in here off the street, you might think, oh, celebration of life. So we're going to go back and remember all of the things they did, and we're going to celebrate all of that. Yeah, but really, we're celebrating a lot that they're alive, right? That they're truly alive now in Jesus Christ. We're only living in the shadow world here. They've entered into the real world of the presence of Christ. And so we celebrate. We do. We sing songs of worship, and we celebrate. And there's generally laughter and, and hallelujahs when we get together to celebrate uh, a life um, because of our hope, our great hope. Um, that's a big one. Another one uh, Paul talks about is we have one Lord. One Lord. We all bend our hearts to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, that's something we share together. And we share one faith, Paul says. We don't put our faith in our goodness, in our ingenuity, in our righteousness. We have a shared faith in Jesus. 
and in what he accomplished on the cross. We know that that is where our one hope comes from, and we put our faith in that in Jesus Christ. And this common faith is, the summary of that would be the gospel. I mean, if you were to distill it, what do you put your faith in? Um, You're going to distill it down to the good news. We put it in the gospel that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day from death to life. And that faith that we have unites us. And the next of Paul's big ones is this. He says we share one baptism. One baptism. In fact, I think this is interesting. I've mentioned this before. Uh, I think I've mentioned it here before. But it's interesting if you read through the New Testament. And typically, when I'm quoting verses in the New Testament about baptism, typically it is to encourage someone who has not been baptized to make that decision. Right? Uh, here's a, here's a, Acts 2.38 or something. I'm going to lead you to this point and try to get you into the baptistry. But in the New Testament... When we hear, when we see that word baptism, it is almost always a word to people who have already been baptized. Think about it. Do, do your Google on your, or use your phone tonight, look at baptism, and I think you're going to find virtually every instance is Paul or Peter talking to people who have been, he's reminding them of that identity that they had when they chose to cross that line from, to faith and be baptized into Christ. It is something, um, and we have such an individualistic uh, emphasis in the United States on everything, even our religion. You know, are you personally saved? Have you personally accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? But in the New Testament, you see much more of a communal aspect of people doing life together. Our baptism. It's our baptism. It's not just my baptism. It's our baptism. Our one baptism. We were all baptized into that gospel story, into the name of Jesus. We share that bond, and that's a big one. And finally, we worship one God. We worship one God. And we do, I mean, you know this, we live in a, we live in a land of idols. We do. Um, where people bend their knee to all sorts of false gods, the money gods, the pleasure gods, uh, the success and achievement gods, uh, relationship gods, where one person becomes of, of the center of someone's life, um, gods who simply cannot save. Idols cannot save. And so in a, in, a, in a land full of gods and idolatry, we worship the one true God. We worship Yahweh. And quite simply, Paul is reminding us of things. None of these are revolutionary. None of these are like, wow, I didn't know we shared that. Or, no, Paul is reminding us of things that we already know, reminding us of the big things that hold us together. And he needs to do that, and we need to do that often. That's one of the things I appreciate about our tradition of, of celebrating the Lord's Supper every Sunday together because those things remind us that the things holding us together are much bigger and stronger than the personality differences and some of the different opinions and preferences and stuff like that. I mean, those are so small, uh, minuscule in comparison to these things that Paul has reminded us of. And when we celebrate communion together, we are reminded of our identity as the family of God and the hope that we have and the lordship of Jesus. Uh, So what could be possibly be bigger than these things? And I I just want to read this passage once again, and we'll we'll close out with this. Back to Ephesians chapter 4. I think I put the wrong chapter there. It is Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. 
Paul says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So let's close tonight by uniting our voices and standing and worshiping together with one, one voice to this marvelous God that we serve.